Welcome to another podcast brought to you by the American Bankruptcy Institute. I am Bill Rochelle, VI's columnist and editor-at-large. Today's topic is artificial intelligence. The expert on our podcast today is Professor Louis Lupica from the University of Maine School of Law. Whether we like it or not, artificial intelligence is the wave of the future in the practice of law. Lawyers need to be on the cutting edge in utilizing artificial intelligence in their everyday practices. Because if you don't, 10 years from now, you may find yourself at a competitive disadvantage compared with lawyers taking advantage of the efficiencies that artificial intelligence will bring to the practice of law. Professor Lupica, as I said, is a professor at the University of Maine School of Law, where she is the Maine Law Foundation Professor of Law. The professor has been on the faculty at Maine Law since 1995. Professor Lupica, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Bill, for having me. Well, seeing as how you are, for my money, the world's premier expert on artificial intelligence, particularly in the <laughs> bankruptcy community. Uh, it is our pleasure to have you, that's for sure. Let me ask you this as our opening question, Professor. What exactly is artificial intelligence, and why do we care? Well, artificial intelligence, or, or AI as it's called, is the process where computers learn how to think like people. And so what does that mean? So programming a computer, so it's able to look for patterns in data and test these patterns and arrive at a conclusion. And it allows for machine decision-making that is informed by the feedback given to it by the human user. And so AI in all its forms is changing the way people think and changing the way people do business. And lawyers are not immune from this transformation. And, and in fact, I was involved in one of the first uh, uses that lawyers um, made of AI when I was an intern in college at the then Arthur Young uh, General Counsel's office. So General Counsel Carl Liggio pioneered a document coding, document production system using early handwriting technology. And and it was in 1978, and at that time, it was, it was primitive, it was bulky, but the department ended up having an electronic record of thousands of litigation documents that could be accessed with a simple query. So think about that. That was 1978, and that's how long lawyers have been thinking about these issues. And while lawyers tend to be risk-averse and slower adopters of new ways of doing things, the more widespread use of AI systems is not far off in legal practice. Well, how far off do you mean? Well, it's being used today um, in, in a myriad ways. It's being used for document discovery uh, in, a, in more sophisticated ways than I just described. Um, case predictive software is commonly used. And in the bankruptcy realm, the most celebrated use in business bankruptcy is the IBM Watson tool, Ross, that's been dubbed the first AI attorney. Let's, let's talk about both of those that you mentioned. Uh, the first was case-predictive technology. 
What is that? Well, it is a tool that uses metrics and analytics to predict case outcomes. And it's, it is in its relative um, early stages of development, but it is being used by a number of firms and businesses. And the, the last I read, um, one of the products uh, is able to predict a case outcome with 97% accuracy. And that's only going to get better. Now, think about how useful that can be to litigators who are deciding whether or not to go forward with litigation or whether or not it's in their best interest to settle. Well, I suppose you could probably also use that pre-dispute, couldn't you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's the context that it's typically, typically used. Wow. Uh, so what is the Watson IBM technology? Well, Ross serves as a legal researcher, and um, it, it, it enables the sifting through thousands of legal documents to reveal relevant information. And then lawyers can react to the information that it reveals. Again, the program learns from the reaction and then fine-tunes its decision-making. The fact is clients, and I mean business clients, need legal research and legal services, but it's expensive, and increasingly clients are less willing to pay for it. So technologies such as Ross allows the delivery of legal services at a more affordable price. Does that IBM software learn in the process, or is what you see what you get? No, it does. It does learn. I mean, that's why it's it's um, an advance from a, a simple database where you put in a query. What, what do you mean it learns? Well, it means that the machine includes algorithms or programs that are able to take a set of information, discern patterns in that information, and then given other data that the user inputs, the program is able to produce effective answers. And machine learning is most effectively used to answer questions where there's no definitive answer or where the definitive answer can't be determined by other means within a reasonable amount of time. Well, you know, I suppose one of these days they're going to have computers that will uh, suggest questions to ask on cross-examination. It'd be interesting to see whether courts will allow counsel to be... Uh, <laughs> if that's not happening already, so... <laughs> Well, it may well be. You know, that sort of seems like uh, kind of issues you have in chess tournaments where they try to forbid people to use computers in figuring out the moves. But, you know, maybe courts will not prohibit that use in, uh, in litigation. Uh, let me ask you this, uh, Professor. Why do you think AI is going to have an uh, important role in the future of the legal profession? Well, I think it has to do with the costs of legal services, costs of legal assistance. In both the business context and in the consumer individual uh, context. So using computers, using sophisticated computer programs is a very hot topic in the world of legal services and it's a very hot topic in the business uh, legal delivery world because both in both contexts, costs and efficiency are at issue. So 
in the context of um, legal services, there is a huge gap for low and moderate income uh, people being able to afford the legal assistance that they need. And indeed, an off-sided statistic is that 80% of the need of legal services eligible people goes unmet due to lack of resources. And so this begs the question of how to leverage technology to make civil justice accessible to the 80% of folks who currently can't afford it. Now, this gap between the availability of legal services and the ability to pay for it isn't sustainable, particularly for everyday people. Um, And it's not sustainable for our society, and it's not sustainable for the legal profession. So in this realm, um, I'm currently working on uh, two projects, one at my law school that, in fact, the ABI Endowment is um, funding, and that's the Consumer Financial Distress Research Study. So out of the thinking and research that we have done in connection with this study designed to Um, test whether or not self-help materials can be as effective as full legal services representation has grown my second project, which which I'm calling the Apps for Justice Project. And through the Apps for Justice Project, we are developing and designing apps for use both by individual people and as well as a model to be used by low bono lawyers or any lawyers interested in having an automated system for client intake and document production. So I'll describe one of the, one of the apps that we've just done. And um, it's built on the Myota Logic platform, which is a platform that's commonly used by big law law firms to develop expert systems. But our self-help tenant app guides the user through a series of questions that determine eligibility and then diagnosis, and then presents the user with an action plan. And the app is is written at a fourth grade reading level, and it includes language and exercises designed to address the user's psychological state, typically distraught when facing a landlord-tenant problem. And it provides an action plan very clearly Number one, call your landlord. Number two, follow up with a letter. Number three, call your town's code enforcement officer, and so on. But what the app does is it also provides the user with a script that is tailored to the person's individual issues and problems as revealed in the intake questions that can be used to call the landlord and to help them through a difficult task. And it also generates a letter detailing the tenant's issues that are gathered from the intake questions that just has to be stamped and mailed and so on. And so we have tested this app with 90 consumers and our preliminary data shows very positive responses. So that's just an example of how technology can be used to not necessarily provide legal representation, but to help a person get the information in a way that is usable, in a way that is not only accessible, but deployable, so they can solve their problems without expensive and sadly unaffordable uh, legal assistance. 
The, the second project that is in the bankruptcy realm that's being pioneered by an undergraduate at Harvard and a young bankruptcy lawyer, and it's called Upsolve. And it's a consumer bankruptcy app designed to scale the pro se materials that me and my co-PIs, uh, Jim Greiner from Harvard and Dahlia Jimenez from UConn, have developed. And it is designed to be a program that it, a person who is eligible for Chapter 7, sitting with a non-lawyer, is walked through a series of questions. And at the end of the interview, um, bankruptcy forms are populated, and then the case is filed with no charge. Now, Upsolve is in its very early stage of development, but so far, the client reaction has been very positive. So these are just a couple of examples of creative uses of technology in, in bridging the access to civil justice gap. Now, uh, Professor, the bankruptcy software that you were mm -hmm. talking about, at present, for what types of cases is it designed? Well, it's designed to be used for simple Chapter 7 cases, the, the kind of um, cases that can be readily commoditized. So uh, typically, Chapter 7, no asset cases. These are the kind of cases that legal services either can handle or don't handle. Now, do you envision that uh, or what the price would be for the use of this software by an individual contemplating bankruptcy? It would be at no cost whatsoever. And that's, that's the business model currently. And it's, it's being developed as a nonprofit, um, as are the apps, the apps for Justice um, project. And what do you think the uh, success rate may be with this software for straightforward Chapter 7s? Well, it's hard to predict, um, but it seems that it gives a consumer who would otherwise be pro se, a better chance at completing the process. There are prompts to take the required courses, and it similarly addresses the mental state that a consumer is in, and it offers the consumer a hand when, they're, when, when they don't have the upfront fee to um, pay a lawyer. Um, and it enables access to the bankruptcy courts. So, so as a result, somebody might be able to do a pro se Chapter 7 when otherwise they might be forced to do a fee-only Chapter 13. Yes, in those jurisdictions that allow them. Do you think uh, this software can be, shall we say, scaled up for more complex 7s and 13s over ensuing years? That's a great question. Um, you know, it's it's often hard to see the full range of what technology can do. It's entirely possible, although um, I haven't seen anything that anything, any product out there that would be able to handle more complex cases, but I'm not saying that that couldn't happen. I would say that the function lawyers perform in representing clients in bankruptcies, the, or at least the, the, the areas that I think lawyers are extremely important are at the decision-making junctions. A lot of uh, tools out there are designed to be used with the 
um, perhaps limited assistance of an attorney, and I could perhaps see that in the future, um, although I don't think we're there yet. Well, you know, with, uh, with sevens and thirteens, one of the issues always is eligibility. Do you see the software being able to prod debtors extensively to come up with hopefully the right answers about eligibility and for which chapter? Currently, the, the, the software program that I just referenced, no. But can, can a machine take over that analysis? Perhaps. It would have to be a fairly sophisticated machine. And what I'm saying is programs that we will use in the future are as yet unimaginable. But the, the signs are pointing in that direction. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, on the assumption that the machines are not going to put lawyers out of business altogether, do you imagine that in the next five to ten years, lawyers will be able to use this software to, uh, shall we say, make it more efficient or more economic to provide representation like sevens and thirteens? I could definitely see that happening. Yes, I think there there are a lot of tasks that involved in filing a bankruptcy petition that is either done by a non-lawyer um, or just a rote task that a lawyer does. And that's where I think technology can shine. Um, if a program can take over basic intake questions, things that are currently done either on um, a pad and paper or with a um, not smart program, um, that's where I see the potential, at least in the bankruptcy realm. In other areas of law, it's already being used as an intake device. The, the other program that um, we built through the Apps for Justice is a family law intake um, program that asks a person who comes to a lawyer um, with a family law matter, it, the, the, the link to the program is then sent to the client the client answers all the questions and gathers the required documents. And then at the first meeting, all of the state court papers are completely filled out. The lawyer has a report from the initial intake. So the lawyer has all the information she needs and then can perform the, the true um, role that a lawyer plays, which is asking um, more detailed questions and making judgments with all the information before them. That's a fantastic example of what technology can do in terms of shaving an hour or two, an, a billable hour or two off of the client's bill. Knowing that matrimonials are as fraught with emotion and economic complexity as bankruptcy, it seems to me that uh, the bankruptcy programs are should be headed in that direction as well, but can be done before sits down mm -hmm. with the lawyer. Mm -hmm. You know, one other thing I was thinking, uh, Professor, is this conceivable that, you know, not everybody on earth, especially low-income people, have computers? I know a lot do, but some don't. Do you see a time when people will be able to dial up on the telephone and the machine will ask questions the client will answer the questions 
and uh, using artificial intelligence voice recognition, the machine understands the answers and then continues to query the client to get the information that's necessary. Do you think we might be headed in that direction in the next 10 years? Hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. Um, perhaps I do know because we looked at this issue, um, over 80% of Americans um, have at least a smartphone and um, the programs that are being designed to be used by um, low and moderate income folks and even middle income folks are smart to be optimized to a smartphone. Um, the programs that, that we have developed are. There are also resources in public libraries and um, in a few court systems, kiosks in courthouses. So while you're absolutely right, not everyone has a computer and not everyone is computer literate, I think there are ways around that. I don't know of any program that works via a telephone, but I could certainly imagine that being a viable um, uh, option if someone is not able or doesn't have even even a smartphone or access to a computer? Well, certainly, I guess if you can borrow someone else's smartphone, that will be able to uh, accomplish the, uh, the result. Uh, do you see mm -hmm. a time when bankruptcy judges will be sitting up on the bench with a pro se client and say, listen here, uh, why don't you use such and such a program and go and find and file a, an, a revised amended petition? If programs such as Upsolve are proven to be effective and produce um, accurate petitions, I, I could see this being a very viable alternative to a person struggling with the forms and struggling with the instructions completely on their own. I mean, it is it, that program and others like it are designed to be assisted pro se. And as the, the, the end product are, it will be as good as the guidance and the direction offered by the program. I think we're at the very early stages of harnessing what technology can provide people um, who are in need of legal services and can't afford them. Um, I think what we will see in five years from now is different than what we're seeing now. Um, but it's, we're, we're beginning to see a glimpse of the future. Uh, Professor, let me ask you this. Uh, uh, this would be an important question for consumer lawyers. Mm -hmm. Do you think that artificial intelligence is going to put them out of business because more clients will be able to do their own petitions pro se? Or do you think it will allow lawyers to represent more clients at a lower cost per petition? Which way is this headed? Mm -hmm. Helping or hurting the profession and or the consumer? I think the use of or the greater use of artificial intelligence in the practice of law will not put lawyers out of business. What I think it can do is enhance the efficiency and cost effectiveness of the delivery of legal services. There will always be a segment of our population that will not be able to afford any professional legal assistance. And I would hope there will be tools out there that will provide assistance to this population. I think for the rest of the population, 
technology will increasingly enable lawyers to deliver better legal services, which is why I think it's so important that lawyers are aware of the proliferation and the movement um, in the area of legal services and AI. And think about how, what, what, what problems do they have that can be solved by technology? Where are the pressure points in the represent, representation of a client that seemed to um, be, uh, add to the inefficiency of the process? And if more people are thinking like that, that will provide the impetus for the development of technology. Uh, Professor, taking off from one of the comments you just now made, let me ask you something about the either the present or the future use of software such as this with, shall we say, more complex business litigation, mm -hmm. corporate law. Let's yeah. take contract, for instance. Let's say that a lawyer is drafting a contract. Is it now possible, or will it be sometime in the near future, to take that contract, uh, run it through a, a piece of software, and have the software highlight any problems or complexities or ambiguities inherent in the draft of a contract. Mm -hmm. I was just reading about a tool that has been developed by a person who is a fellow at Codex. And the idea, uh, according to this article, came out of the King v. Burrell case where the fight was over the language, the, the, the term in the Affordable Care Act, um, that was litigated. And so this new tool, and it's called LitIQ, permits attorneys to automatically find ambiguities in contracts that could cause problems. So it, it appears to be a tool that allows an attorney to be proactive um, when drafting a contract and recognizing when there may be a term or a phrase or um, a paragraph may not um, bring certainty to the particular transaction. So that's just one example of um, clever people identifying problems and using technology to create tools um, that can readily solve problems. Well, I must tell you, Professor, if I were, say, 40 years younger, uh, I might bail out of the practice of law and get involved with trying to develop software to assist to lawyers like this. <laughs> yeah, boy, this, uh, this is really exciting stuff. Well, Professor, I think our time is about up. Uh, let me thank you very much, uh, Professor Lopika, for joining us today. And I can tell our audience that this and all other ABI podcasts are available 24 hours a day on the ABI website, under the heading Newsroom. And if you haven't done so already, I encourage you to sign up for my daily column where we explore the newest and most important opinions every day that affect bankruptcy law and practice. Thank you all very much and good day. 